Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Saturday the 20th of January. Hope you all had a good Christmas and New Year. Coming up on today's show, going to be taking a listen to Dr John Campbell talking about a sad subject of uh, child excess deaths at 8% and then listening to his commentary on Andrew Bridgen MP talking about excess deaths in general in the House of Commons. That happened a week ago in the UK. Then listening to a interesting monologue from Russell Brand. And then investigative journalist Whitney Webb talking to Glenn Beck. I'm going to be giving you tasters of those kind of things. And then if you want to listen to more of the tasters, go and listen to the clips in their entirety. In the comments section, you can find the links. Hopefully, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So let's go and start listening to Dr. John Campbell talking about a very sad subject. You are most welcome. Now, I'd like to play you a clip from yesterday's uh, parliamentary debate on excess deaths. Now, this is from Dr. Uh, Caroline Johnson. She's the Member of Parliament for Sleaford and North uh, Hakingham. Now, the interesting thing here is that this is actually a, a Conservative politician. And the critique she's making, of course, is of her own government. Her, her Conservative Party is in power, which makes it, uh, to my mind, a, a more poignant contribution. Let's get to the contribution now. Agree. But as a consultant paediatrician, I'd like to focus on children. The Child Mortality Database, National Child Mortality Database, collates data regarding children's deaths from 0 to 18. Their latest bulletin from March 23 shows there were sadly 3,743 child deaths to the end of March 23, which is an increase of 8% on the previous year. So could the Minister con- comment on her investiga- what investigation she's doing into the cause of this increased mortality and what's being done to prevent further deaths? The purpose of CEDOP is to investigate these deaths, but the average investigation is taking 392 days, with less than half completed within 12 months and a significant fall in the number being completed within 12 months. can ask what she's doing to improve this uh, process. Um, one particularly distressing feature of child death data is that suicide or deliberate self-harm was the primary cause of death between children of between 10 and 17 years. Looking for the data, it's getting um, much worse within children 10 to 14. I understand the government's aware of these figures and is investing in mental health for children and improving online safety, but we'd be grateful if the Minister could elaborate further on the steps they're taking to support children and prevent further tragedies. One of the reasons I get exasperated... Sorry, I'm finishing this. One of the reasons I get exasperated with the COVID inquiry is there seems too much focus on who said what to whom, did someone swear, did the actors like each other, I'm not that interested. I want to know what lessons can be learned. Was lockdown useful? Is getting children out of school useful? Was the vaccine suitable thing to give children or not, particularly if they'd had COVID before? These are the answers that we need. Well, I wanted to play that clip particularly because of the importance of uh, children and excess mortality in children. Uh, uh, Dr Johnson, as she said there herself, a senior paediatrician. Up to March 2023, 8% increase in child deaths, which is concerning. And the way you, the the numbers you put on this depends on what you're comparing it to, of course. Now, she did mention before before the clip where I started that uh, excess deaths are often now counted, including 2022. But we know there was excess deaths in 2022. So, of course, that's going to have the effect. If we we include that as part of the five-year average, 
and it's going to bump the five-year average up and make excess deaths in any subsequent year look less than they actually are. So um, always this problem with numbers, of course, but uh, slightly concerning that 2022 figures are often being taken into account. But anyway, we have this 8% deaths, uh, increased deaths in children. This is, this is a lot of deaths in children. She rightly wants to know the causes, because if we know the causes, we can prevent it. And the delay in reporting deaths, 392 days. You see, the whole point is we need to correct for things that are going wrong in live time, not over a year later. Something goes wrong today, we want to correct it tomorrow. Just think about things like the thalidomide uh, scandal in the past. You know, if we'd waited over a year, then there would have been another complete birth cohort of babies that would have been affected by that. We need this lifetime data, otherwise it becomes fairly not meaningless, it's useful, but it is very much delayed. We can't correct for things that could be could be going dramatically wrong now. And she correctly pointed out the risk for self-harm there, which has been uh, increasing in children, which is, of course, always alarming, self-harm and suicide. What are the factors there? To what degree is that related to COVID? Is it related to neurobiological factors? Wide variety of neurobiological factors. We, we need to know, basically. Um, and she shares my exasperation with the COVID inquiry. Who says what to who? And you know, we're not interested in tittle-tattle, as she rightly said, because we need to know what happened about lockdowns. What was the effect of them? Um, vaccines. Was it appropriate to give vaccines to children? You might not need to think too long about that one, especially after they'd had COVID themselves, especially when they've already got natural, active, acquired immunity as a result of our wonderful immune system that can recognise nine billion different foreign proteins. So some pretty good questions there um, from, from uh, Dr Johnson. So that's why I wanted to play that clip. Um, if 8% more children are dying around the world, to the extent we can extrapolate this, it's a pretty terrifying issue, to be quite honest, as you're a parent or a grandparent, um, you, you, you'll relate to that very strongly. More on this debate shortly, but I'm, I'm just going to get these out as I sort of think about Well, in fact, right now, I'm going to play you a taster of another clip. Uh, this was 16th of January debate. Well, welcome to today's talk, Tuesday the 16th of January. Now, I've just started my analysis of the Westminster Hall debate, just finished about half an hour ago, uh, in the British Parliament. Mr Andrew Bridgen is giving an opening speech on excess deaths. So I'm just going to allow Mr Bridgen to speak for himself just in, in, in entirety. Please give him the time. Mr Bridgen has suffered for his stance. He's been ostracised and criticised all over the place. He's lost his party membership. And coincidentally, today, he was offered a plush trip to Davos, which I believe is a place in Switzerland. But he didn't. He stayed at home and represented the British people. Now, let's give him the time, please, and listen to his points. You decide if he's following the evidence. Order, order. Andrew Bridgen to move the motion. Andrew. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Sir Gary, and it's always a pleasure to serve under your chairmanship. I would like to th start by thanking the Backbench uh, Business Committee for scheduling this debate, and to the 17 colleagues from across the House who supported this application for a debate on the trends on excess deaths, following on from my adjournment debate on the 20th of October on the same issue. Uh, Sir Gary, the, uh, the eyes of history are upon us. Every generation looks back in wonder 
at the incredible mistakes of our forebears. They will ask questions such as how could they possibly realise how, how, how wrong they were? What on earth happened to them? Why did they ignore the evidence for so long, their values and every opportunity to learn from the mistakes of yesteryear? What madness captures men? From 2010 to 2019, annual death rates in England and Wales oscillated between 484,000 and 542,000. In 2020, there were 607,000 deaths, 65,000 more than the maximum in 2018. In 2021, there were 586,000, which is 44,000 more than the 2018 figure. After such a rise, there should be a deficit, a significant deficit. In fact, because sadly, our most vulnerable and elderly who might have lived a while longer were taken from us early. But in 2022, there were 577,000 deaths in England and Wales, and in 2023, 581,000. A huge rise when, in fact, a significant deficit would and should be expected. The deficit, and then some, has been filled not with the extremely old and the extremely vulnerable, but with others, many, many others, who were often young or in the prime of their lives. You might want to ascribe the excess deaths in 2022 and 2023 to the virus, but that would be a mistake. That's not what their death certificates say, and moreover, there are far too many young people dying. Far from being below the recent polling, uh, rolling average, excess deaths in 2022 have been above. 6% above, in fact. In 2023, when one might expect deaths to finally fall below the average, the excess has also been 6% above. These numbers are higher in the younger age groups. No one with integrity can fail to be troubled by these figures. What actually is going on? And that's what we need this debate for today. It's a problem that affects us all. It affects every community in every constituency across the country. And uh, I would like to thank all the honourable and right honourable members who have attended this debate today. And I think we need to thank the public for their interest, which has stirred the interest of colleagues. And I'm very encouraged by the turnout for today's debate, which is considerably better than we've seen in the past. Not everyone in this room will be comfortable with analysing scientific data and figures. Um, that is not my position. I was fortunate enough to um, have, take a degree from Nottingham University in Biological Sciences many years ago, and I specialised in biochemistry, genetics, behaviour and virology. I'll give one on that. Yeah. It's a very important debate he's having. So in 2022, we saw nearly as many excess deaths across the UK as during the Blitz. And in my own region of Yorkshire, every single year since the pandemic, we have had excess deaths. And my constituents are very concerned by this. But what they're also concerned about is almost a deafening silence from the NHS about what is causing this, why it's happening, and what they're doing to alleviate this. So I thank the Honourable Gentleman for bringing this very important debate today, and only by talking about it can we actually get to the root cause of what the issue is, because there clearly is an issue. Well, that's the whole point of a representative democracy. We're here to raise the issues on behalf of our constituents and to look after their best interests at all times. I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his attendance, but we had enough signatures for a three-hour debate in the main chamber. We were actually giving a 90-minute debate in Westminster Hall, which 
I did mention to the chair of the Backbench Business Committee, I felt was a bit of an insult, given the gravity of the issue we're debating, uh, to those who've uh, lost loved ones over the last few years. And I'd also like to... I'll give way. And he's right to point there is considerable concern about this issue. And due to that concern, does he agree with me that we should be using uh, the most accurate data available and using a data set of the age standardised mortality rates, which takes into consideration growing population and an ageing population? Of course, uh, we, we should be using the most accurate figures that we've got. And I, later on in the speech, near the end, I'll be talking about the data that we really want, which could settle this matter once and for all uh, beyond reasonable doubt. So I thank the public for their pressure and their interest in these statistics. And I thank the people who've attended today in person and the thousands and thousands who'll be watching on the television or, or online. There is a burning question, Sir Gary, at the heart of this debate. This is, after excess deaths, there should be a deficit. Where is that expected deficit? When will we have it? And worse, why is the deficit not being filled but significantly exceeded? And why are the institutions, whose job it is to notice these matters, to record these matters, to publicise and call attention to these matters, why are they all apparently asleep at the wheel? And the second burning question, which I'll come to first, is why is no one listening to those raising the alarm? The research and analysis of two of Britain's most trusted doctors provides us with alarming clarity. Only this week, Sir Gary, the director of the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, Professor Carl Hennigan, reviewed the causes of excess deaths and concludes that they are predominantly related to cardiovascular disease. He told the Sunday Express newspaper, this cannot be explained by COVID, population growth, or an aging population. Consultant cardiologist, Dr. Asim Malhotra, who is a world-leading expert in the causes of heart disease, also told TNT Radio yesterday that even though cardiovascular disease is multifactorial, the top of the list for, in the hierarchy of causes behind excess cardiac-related deaths has to be the experimental COVID mRNA vaccine until proven otherwise. And this is not speculative. No. I won't give way at this, but let me just finish this trial and I'll give way to the Honourable Gentleman. This is not speculative, but based on the highest level of data which combines plausible biological mechanism, randomised controlled trials, high quality observational data, pharmacovigilance data, autopsy data and clinical data. And those who choose not to acknowledge these cold, hard facts, cold, hard facts, Mr Sagari, are either unaware of the evidence willfully blind or lack a conscience. I'll give way to the Honourable Gentleman. I'm very grateful to the member for giving way and I'm grateful for uh, shining a spotlight on this important debate about excess deaths but I'm just keen to understand the difference between co correlation and causation because there's a correlation between eating ice cream and sunburn but we don't necessarily assume the two are together. Yeah. It could be sunny weather. The same goes for this case. Is it to do with the fact it's lockdown? Is it to do with late presentation, access to the NHS? These are the key bits to try and understand the causation and correlation to understand why these numbers are so high. I agree with the honourable gentleman. He is a medical doctor, so he does have some knowledge, clearly. Uh, but to correlation is not causation. But correlation is an alarm bell, Sir Gary. And alarm bells are going off all over the building, but no one wants to open the door and see if there's a, there's, a, there's a fire. I believe that future generations will ridicule us 
for what we've just done in response to a seasonal airborne virus. We apparently lost our collective minds. We've imposed a brand new type of quarantine on a healthy population. In breach of all public, uh, previous public health advice, in breach of our own carefully crafted expert pandemic plan, in breach of flagrant breach of the sensible and experienced advice from many professionals. Those noble dissenters are being vindicated one by one, inevitably so, as the suppressed, shaming, real-world evidence finally emerges. I'm not going to mention those who harass and discredit and ridicule the dissenters. They, they loudly paraded their egotistical virtue on social media, in the press and on television. I know exactly uh, what harassment feels like. And we inflicted social distancing, masking and school closures on healthy children at no risk from the virus. We did this to protect adults at the expense of our children and their social and mental health. People raised alarm, Sir Gary, but nobody listened. A society that consciously and knowingly sacrifices perfectly healthy children for adults is sick in itself. Our time, this time, will not be an era that's looked on well by future generations. That is going to be our legacy. And I call on this House and those in authority to right this grievous wrong and right it quickly. With unbearable cruelty, we isolated even those who would gladly have made the individual choice to see their grandchildren. And worst of all, we bypassed all the procedures, all the protocols, and all the science to inflict on a healthy population a brand new and untested product that had never before been used outside clinical trials, never mind approved. There was no long-term safety data. The safety analysis in the trials was eight weeks, and, and then the control group was vaccinated. No age stratification for recipients of an, uh, an experimental medication for an illness with an average mortality age of 82. No liability under any circumstances for the manufacturers of these experimental treatments. Furthermore, there were good reasons, based on the science known at the time, why these products might be harmful. Ridiculous future generations may come to loathe us. We will be forever be the poster boys and girls of a society that collectively lost its mind and lost its moral compass. They will hang this millstone around our necks for eternity. And what's the flaw in this human nature that latches on to things and destroys all before it? It's been dubbed by some as the madness of crowds or a kind of mass formation psychosis. The sort of thing that allowed China to commit population Armageddon with a one-child policy for decades. The sort of thing that... Uh, allowed us to have millions, millions of cattle slaughtered during uh, the apparent foot and mouth outbreak where we persuaded, not by the science, but by plausible patter of provable idiots like Professor Neil Ferguson. Yes, the very same. His advice led to the bankruptcy, the immiserization and the utter despair of countless farmers forced to destroy their own livelihoods in a futile attempt to prevent the spread of an airborne virus, a virus that had already managed to pass in the air all the way from France to the Isle of Wight. So how many times must the so-called experts be caught literally with their pants down as their models fail yet again? How long must we be subjected to debunked dribble being dumped in our political discourse? How long must decision makers deal with discredited modelling and moribund and captured institutions? And why will no one listen to reason when they've been proven wrong so many times? 
And there are plenty of other examples in medicine, from bloodletting with leeches to pointless lobotomies to not washing hands between the mortar and the labour ward. Doctors and scientists are far from immune to groupthink, and the current batch are living proof. I, I'll give way on that point. Uh, to the Honourable Gentleman. And this will not be the first, or I suspect the last government in history, not to follow the evidence when it comes to uh, difficulty. But when governments make uh, mistakes and protect themselves and don't uh, look at the evidence, we as a democratic society should expect there to be an inquiry that establishes uh, what has happened and what should have happened and what should happen in the future. Does the Honourable Gentleman agree with me that the inquiry that we have set up is failing in its task in doing uh, that job and it is assuming that lockdown was right from the, the beginning? <coughs> I, thank, I thank the Right Honourable Gentleman for that intervention and I agree with him wholeheartedly. This is not a, a political issue, this is a public health uh, issue that should affect every constituency in the House. I think we know that the so-called COVID inquiry is, uh, has, has already set itself out, the answers it wants to get to. It, it has all the appearance of a whitewash and clearly <clears throat> it was deeply disappointing this week when they announced that the, the module to do with the safety and efficacy of the vaccines has been put off indefinitely, certainly until after the next general election, which is extremely disappointing. And, and another instance uh, I could talk about is, is that I contacted every public and media body I could think of in 2014 to tell them again and again that the sub-postmasters were innocent. But no one listened. And I knew that sub-postmasters in my constituency were completely honest. Anybody who knew these pillars of society knew it. The innocent were falsely accused of dishonesty over the Horizon scandal, and they were relentlessly pursued by a merciless, mendacious and malicious bureaucracy. And it's the coldness that shocks most, Sir Gary. The imperious arrogance, the mercilessness that captures institutions and cowards in authority when a single narrative closes our collective minds to nuance, to experience, to the inconvenient truths. No one listened to the sub-postmasters. No one cared. No one, in, no one in power moved a muscle to help. But now, all of a sudden, one media programme has shifted the narrative to reveal that the experts were wrong, that our institutions were wrong, that those in authority were wrong, and that an infallible computer system was in fact fallible. Even our justice system got it so tragically wrong with thousands of court hearings and judges making wrong judgments. Will the post office lessons be learned regarding the COVID insanity? So who's actually dying now? Well, it's not the old and frail, as it was with COVID, in fact, the deaths from dementia, a key benchmark of elderly deaths have been in deficit ever since COVID, as we would expect after a period of uh, high mortality. Instead, particularly for cardiovascular deaths, there's been an incessant week-on-week -week excess mortality for months and months in the young and middle-aged. Every age group's affected, but the 50 to 64-year-old age group has had it worse, and I'll declare an interest. Um, there has been... <laughs> They have been stricken with 12% more deaths than usual in 2022, 13% in 2023, and at least five out of six of those deaths this year have nothing to do with COVID whatsoever. My constituent, Stephen Miller, 
was a healthy IT engineer in his 40s. He had two doses of AstraZeneca jabs in the summer of 2021 and was ill very shortly afterwards. His side effects were so bad that he lost his job and in November 2021 he was rushed into hospital and he now has cardiomyopathy and has ventricular failure with a maximum of five years to live, taking him to 2026, unless he has a heart transplant. And when I saw him last, he had a, a resting heart rate of 145 beats per minute. He subsequently has lost his partner and access to his child and is at risk of losing his house. He now has a diagnosis from Glenfield Hospital in Leicester of vaccine-induced cardiomyopathy. And I will help him to try and get the compensation. But he's just one example of one of my constituents who's probably going to have 30 years of his life stolen off him. His child will lose his father. How is £120,000 of compensation possibly adequate for that? And I certainly will. I'm most grateful to my honourable friend for introducing uh, this debate uh, so coherently. But would he be able to explain why Module 4 of the public inquiry into the safety of these vaccines has been arbitrarily postponed from next July? Surely the case he mentions highlights the need for urgent inquiry into this. Um, my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise, raise that issue. Why would they put any investigation uh, at the public inquiry, which I think is costing some hundreds of millions of pounds and should be there for the public interest, uh, put that debate back in indefinitely. Um, I fear there has been political pressure placed on the inquiry. Clearly, there's a, a lot of political capital uh, in the run-up to the next election has been placed on the fact that the government and support from the opposition parties did the right thing in our uh, pandemic response, including the rollout of the vaccines. I think the very fact that they've done this indicates that there is something to hide and it should make the public extremely suspicious and I'll be coming on to that shortly. Um, for two years we turned society upside down so as not to quote unquote kill granny. Now that mum and dad are dying uh, it appears that no one cares. This is Alice in Wonderland thinking. People in their 50s and 60s, I declare an interest again, normally have more uh, many more years of active contribution, I hope so, and deeply fulfilling lives left to live, and these are the people being hit the hardest. Furthermore, the raw number of lives lost is not the only measure we can look at. We, we have better methods. The most famous method is known as quality-adjusted life years. Those who understand public health generally refer to these as qualies. Qualies measure healthy years of life lost under the most sensible metric for properly assessing the impacts of deaths on lost life, on families and on society. Qualies were ignored at the outset. They were ignored in July 2020, when the government's own assessment was that lockdowns would reduce qualies by about, by about a million years. The UK, a million years. They were ignored when deciding to inject the young with experimental vaccines, despite the refusal of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to recommend jabbing under-15s in September 2021. Even at the COVID inquiry, when the Prime Minister tried to raise the issue of quality-adjusted life years, he was shouted down by Hugo Keith, King's Counsel. The lead lawyer at the COVID inquiry, he then revealed his unbelievable unforgivable his negligence and his ignorance by saying I don't want to get into life uh, quality life assurance models 
This, I repeat, is the most senior lawyer at the so-called COVID inquiry. So when I say future generations will ridicule us, it's not hard to see reasons why. The pandemic, a term which some of our best academics from around the globe questioned from the outset in published and peer-reviewed papers, is over. The crisis has passed, yet still empty vessels continue to drown out intelligent, reasoned, expert discourse. Not knowing what a quali means is one thing, but parading his ignorance with arrogant disdain ought to disqualify Mr Keith from any further part in that inquiry. And sadly, his condescending disdain for open inquiry epitomises what many of us have encountered time and time again when raising these issues. We've seen a smorgasbord of fanciful excuses proffered for the rise in heart attacks. Sir Chris Whitty laughably claimed that it was a reduction in statin prescriptions, even though prescribing levels were exactly the same. Mm. And it would take years, or even decades, for changes on that issue to take effect and be seen in population mortality data. The media have tried to persuade us, persuade the people, that eating eggs, or the wrong kind of breakfast, or climate change is to blame. So, Gary, people are sick of being patronised with these lies. Some have claimed the excess deaths are due to COVID. The literature is littered with studies claiming that COVID causes heart disease. Almost all include COVID cases from spring 2020. It was almost impossible to be tested and become an official case unless you were sick and in hospital. So, Gary, proving that sick people get heart disease more than healthy people does not mean that COVID causes heart disease. Indeed, the claims can be easily debunked. Cardiac deaths have seen a steep rise in both Australia and Singapore, as well as the UK. And these countries did not have any significant COVID until 2022, but they did roll out the jabs exactly the same time as we did in the UK. Correlation does not prove causation. We've already heard it in this debate. But correlation with and without COVID can rule out causation. The excess cardiac deaths were certainly not caused by COVID. Some have claimed that the excess deaths were caused by lockdowns. Well, it's well known that psychological stress increases the risk of heart disease. The government subjected people to a massive propaganda campaign of fear, well documented by Laura Dodsworth in her book, State of Fear. We were cut off from our usual support networks. For many, we saw immense financial pressures. Such policies could contribute to heart disease in a minor way. However, the sharpest rise came later entirely coincident with the jab rollout. So we have a clear temporal link between increased deaths and vaccination. And some have claimed that the excess can't be down to the jabs because Sweden have uh, not had as many excess deaths as elsewhere, despite having a very similar number of doses per million of the experimental vaccines. But it's important to understand that heart disease is a cumulative risk. In the UK, we already have a serious problem with heart disease before the pandemic. And it's just got much worse uh, following the vaccine rollout. And by contrast, Sweden has the longest healthy life expectancy in Europe. It's no wonder that they are a statistical outlier on excess deaths now. If you're under 50 and you live in Sweden, the chances of dying from heart disease are already half that of uh, a resident of the UK of the same age. Some have admitted to the problem, but claimed it was worth it. Science journalist Tom Chivers even said regarding jabbing children, it sounds cruel, but a small number of, of deaths would be worth it. As I pointed out earlier, from China through to the UK, any culture willing to openly sacrifice children for adults is rotten in my view to its very core. 
And look what's happening now. Yes, again, we're seeing a peak in COVID hospitalizations. We should be ex when we, 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 as we should be expecting from a coronavirus in January. The number of people infected and the number of intensive care admissions was about the same every six months before and after the vaccinations. The number of COVID intensive care admissions in the January to June of 2020 wave was about the same as the July to December 2020 COVID wave and remained similar in the January to June 2021 COVID wave and the July to December 2021 COVID wave. The jab therefore had no impact whatsoever. And those interested may wish to consult a recent paper in the Journal of Clinical Medicine that demonstrates exactly this point. And the next important factor is, is that Omicron is far less deadly. The reason there are fewer COVID deaths now is because Omicron's arrival at the beginning of 2022. But viral waves will continue to come and go until almost everyone has post-infection immunity. And we're not there yet. It's clear that viral waves were not impacted by lockdowns. It's increasingly clear they were not impacted by the jabs either. People have denied that the viral waves peak naturally at predictable times of year. But how much longer can that be denied? The lockdowns did not cause deaths to decline from their peaks in April 2020 because they also peaked and fell in April 2022 and March 2023 without lockdowns. Indeed, in 2020, infections were already falling before the lockdowns were even started. The actual problem with excess deaths started in spring 2021 with the jab rollout. And there was a stepwise rise in ambulance calls for life-threatening emergencies at exactly the same times. Hospitals started to be overwhelmed also for the first time. And the number of people unable to work because of long-term sickness started to rise. Even mayday calls from aircraft rose. Are we meant to think that this is all a coincidence? When are we actually? We know that these injections cause a range of serious adverse events, especially cardiac events. Now, the excess deaths are the tip of this very ugly iceberg. And we haven't even mentioned the world-shaking scandal of jabbing people who'd already had COVID, which, at a stroke, almost entirely demolishes the credibility of our public health policies at this period. We completely immune, uh, uh, ignored natural immunity. That one fact ought to be a red flag of gigantic proportions, but no one's listening. And I haven't got time to discuss the fact that jab was, was not pulled when it became clear that an incredible one in 800 doses administered led to serious adverse events and consequences. The rotavirus vaccine was pulled entirely after causing an adverse event rate of one in 10,000. For the 2009 swine flu vaccine, it was an adverse event of one in 35,000 that were harmed, and it was then pulled off the market. The COVID jab is still being pushed, and it's seriously harming people. Inevitably, at a rate much higher than one in 800, because most people are being exposed to multiple doses of the vaccine with the, uh, the same risk, adverse event risk, at each dose. Thalidomide, syphilis treatment, all these infamous, appalling, shattering medical scandals are dwarfed by under the iceberg under the water that is the medical scandal we're currently living through, the experimental COVID-19 so-called vaccines. And it took 11 years after the drug was withdrawn in 1961 for thalidomide scandal was first raised in Parliament. 11 years after the thalidomide scandal, before the word thalidomide could even be mentioned in the Chamber of the House of Commons. Well, Sir Gary, I'm not going to let that happen this time. That's why I fought so hard to raise this issue in Parliament at a cost of my reputation, my career, and the financial security of my family.
The public inquiry should be urgently looking at this issue. Instead, they're wasting taxpayers' money accessing over WhatsApp messages while people are dying. As if that isn't bad enough, so I've already shared with you, the, uh, we learnt this week, that the vaccine module has been postponed indefinitely for no good reason. It's as if the inquiry is so desperate not to find fault that they can't even look at what's happened with the vaccines. We need transparency. Dr Claire Cray, co-chair of the Heart Group, has been doggedly pursuing the UK Health Security Agency for their record-level data on dosage, dates and deaths for a year. This is the data that could sort out this issue once and for all. They admit they've got it. The MHRA admit that all this data has been released to Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna. Yet they claim they cannot anonymise it for public release to the public. A failure to release this data makes it look like there is definitely something to hide. A recent poll in the USA shows that more than half of the public think the vaccines are responsible for a significant number of deaths. If there was nothing to hide, they would certainly release this data for analysis anonymised to stop the upswell of legitimate concern. The latest response from the Information Commissioner's office is that Dr Claire Cray has got to wait another six months at least before a case officer will be assigned to this issue. This is not acceptable, Sir Gary. They've released our health data to Big Pharma, but they won't release it to us. The record data, level data must be released. It is, it is really too much to ask. Is it really too much to ask that the British public be given the same level of access to the relevant data given to Big Pharma companies, those actually responsible for this debacle? Corporations that carefully secured immunity from all legal liability, or in this country, indemnity from the government before dangerously and negligently experimenting on the health of our nation and the world. We're witnesses to the greatest medical scandal in living memory, the consequential fallout in trust, public opinion, and public confidence uh, is only just beginning. Continued attempts to shut down debate flatten dissent and obstruct independent analysis can, can only delay the eventual collective shame. It's going to be a reckoning and we're going to have to try and rebuild trust in our health services, in our media and in our politics and uh, we haven't even started on, on that journey. So Gary, before I was expelled from the Conservative Party for voicing my concerns over these experimental vaccines and the harms that I believe they call, I met with a senior member of the party who, after listening to my concerns about the vaccines and uh, NG163, the midazolam and morphine scandal, told me quite calmly, Andrew, there is currently no political appetite for your views on the vaccines. There may well be in 20 years' time, and you're probably going to be proven right. But in the meantime, you need to bear in mind, you're taking on the most powerful vested interest in the world with all the personal risk for you that that will entail. So, Gary, I refuse to bow to that threat. And as they say, the rest is history. People have alleged that I'm spouting conspiracy theories. Well, I, I think it is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy against the science. It's a conspiracy of silence, and Sir Gary, it's a conspiracy against the people, and I will have none of it. Wow, and, uh, well, clearly a lot more to come on that. I'm not going to comment on individual points now. We are going to be analysing this in some detail, and we will be thought to, thinking about the responses from some of the other members of Parliament present. But, but for now, we'll just put this out there. This is live on the day. 
So for now, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament in the United Kingdom. So, a great deal of information there, all in one go. Now, let's listen to Russell Brand. that an alarming number of people may have died as a result of the COVID vaccine. Meanwhile, Albert Ball has made a $43 billion bet that turbo cancers are going to be on the rise. A cynical person might seek to make a connection between these two alarming facts about Pfizer. But I'd never do that. Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining us on our voyage to truth and freedom. Remember, we stream every day and we have a supporters movement that we would love you to belong to. There's a link in the description telling you how you can participate in our movement and potentially avert the kind of global peculiarities that we're addressing right now. You will have seen perhaps Brett Weinstein on Tucker talking about how many people potentially died as a result of recent medical interventionism during the pandemic period. Indeed, we reported on that data capture from New Zealand that revealed that the figures could be as high as 17 million. Now these are purely speculative figures at this stage and I wouldn't like to posit anything other than that. But certainly we know that adverse events are extremely high. Certainly we know that reporting has been deliberately obfuscating and confusing around this matter. One thing that's for sure is that Pfizer and their CEO Albert Baller are pretty confident that there's going to be a turbo cancer explosion all around the world. And guess what? There has been recently, and this is a fact, an extraordinary and unprecedented rise of cancer in young people. And scientists are baffled as to what could be causing it. I wonder if it's comparable to the recent rise in heart disease around the world. Now, if you want to see us speaking about this more plainly, join our movement details below. But let's get into this story now. First of all, by looking at Brett Weinstein talking a tucker then we're going to look at baller betting that turbo cancers are going to explode around the world and you know when baller makes a moonshot baller hits the moon he's like some sort of bond villain when that guy says i'm going to hit the moon there's going to be some new craters up there so let's watch out for that we'll also be looking at this extraordinary rise in cancer in young people and seeing if there's any connection between that and oh i don't know would you become more suspicious if you found out for example that the makers of mrna vaccines had indemnity from legal prosecution that would be an interesting piece of evidence as well wouldn't it first of all let's start with Brett Weinstein talking to Tucker about the potential number of deaths from recent medical interventions. I was recently at a conference uh, in Romania on the COVID crisis, and so there was a lot of work trying to unpack what we actually understand. And I love Brett Weinstein. He always looks a little bit down, doesn't he? I feel like Brett Weinstein, even if he was giving you a birthday gift, he would still be a bit down. Heather and I have bought you this book talk, and you probably don't want it. Listen, I'll throw it in the bin. No, no, I like it. No, it's not good enough. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I saw a credible estimate of something like 17 million deaths globally from this technology, so... 17 million deaths from the COVID vax? Those figures line up with what Steve Kirsch said when he was on our show pertaining to the New Zealand data breach, which obviously the legacy media are not reporting on. And as a side note, Tucker's done his hair slightly differently. Well, when you know, when you scale up to billions, uh, it's not hard to reach a number like that with a technology this dangerous. People's willingness to accept the erosion of their rights because of a public health emergency um, has allowed this tyranny to to use it as a Trojan horse. It's something people need to become aware of. There are a number of features of our environment. Basically, they are blind spots 
that we can't see past. Vaccine was one. And I know I was an, an enthusiast about vaccines. I still believe deeply in the elegance of vaccines as they should exist. But I'm now very alarmed at how they are produced. And I'm even more alarmed at what has been called a vaccine that doesn't meet the definition. Because many of us believe that vaccines uh, were an extremely elegant, low harm, high uh, efficacy method of preventing disease, when they called this mRNA tech technology a vaccine, many of us um, gave it more credibility than we should have. When you see legacy media reporting on figures like Brett Weinstein and indeed the perspectives of people like Brett, it's always astonishing to actually see them and how diffident and considered and scientific and gentle they are because of course in legacy media they're talked about as like hysterical hyperbolic what this type of media has revealed to us is there are a variety of perspectives that have to be condemned as hysterical because otherwise they seem completely reasonable what he's saying there is that he has all manner of respect for vaccine technology but what happened in the last couple of years was an intervention that used the word vaccine as a kind of veil to mask what they actually were and all of you guys let me know in the chat in the comments commonly use phrases like experimental technology and stuff like that and clearly that's a pretty valid perspective if they had called it uh, a, a gene transfection technology we would have thought wait what you know that that's that sounds highly novel and it sounds dangerous and how much do we know about the long-term implications also we know that there was so much marketing pumped into vaccines you saw all of the musical numbers the government campaigns they didn't just plainly and pragmatically say listen this is a new technology that we have give it a whirl it was extraordinary bombastic distracting in fact all of the evangelism hysteria and zeal exists on the apparently rational side of the argument where the counter narratives those that are inquiring those that might refer to ourselves as the resistance are a variety of characters but many of them involve the highly rational quite calm individuals like Brett there. But because they called it a vaccine, people were much readily, much more willing to, to accept it. But before we get into Albert Baller's new moonshot, turbo cancers here at last, let's first examine whether or not pharmaceutical companies are opportunistic and would see crises as a great chance to make money, explore new techniques, or even create market conditions that would otherwise be inconceivable. Ultimately, the uh, the mRNA vaccines uh, are an example for that uh, cell and gene therapy. I always like to say, if we had surveyed two years ago uh, in the public, would you be willing to take a uh, uh, gene, th gene or cell therapy and inject it into your body, we would have probably had a 95% refusal rate. What if we were to terrify you for a couple of years? Would you consider it then, oh, I suppose I'm terrified. And what if we shamed you? Oh, yes, yeah, shame. I wouldn't like that. And we lock you in your home, of course. All right, I'll take your damn product. I think uh, this pandemic has also opened many people's eyes to... Yes, it's suddenly opened a lot of people's eyes. That's part of the problem, isn't it? They went too far. They overplayed their hand. Many people's eyes are opening. To innovation in the way that uh, was maybe not possible before. Okay, so we've seen now Weinstein's claim that the vaccine wasn't even really a vaccine. We've seen people from within the industry saying it was extraordinary and admitting that they were opportunistic in their approach to this. Now, let's get into Pfizer's new moonshot, turbo cancers. Many of you will know that it's an accepted, even sort of quasi-mainstream media critique that Pfizer aren't an innovative pharmacological company where scientists are in laboratories doing all sorts of experiments. This is me being a scientist. Come on, get 
get eight mouses. Splash that one. Oh, my God, my eyes. No, Pfizer operate more like a venture capitalist organization. In this case, buying up a smaller company that's been working on medications for turbo cancers. They've recently paid over the odds $43 billion for a company that has a $2 billion a year turnover, which seems to suggest that Albert Baller and Pfizer think that turbo cancers are going to be a big thing in the future. Why would they think that? What's the evidence? What is that prognosis, dark as it may be for the rest of us, based on? Well, cancer is seemingly on the rise, and we'll be telling you a little bit more about that in young people. We've already seen excess sudden deaths. We've seen myocarditis, pericarditis, unexplained heart attacks, collapsing. Now it seems that there's a rise of cancer. What's happened lately? What could be causing this mysterious flare-up in all sorts of diseases? Let me know in the comments and chat. Here though is Albert Baller talking about his new moonshot and I like the way they keep continually selling this as if he's some sort of brilliant genius entrepreneur rather than a person who appears to be exploiting misery for money. Lastly, what is Pfizer's next moonshot and how do you expect to get there? She's not even that into it. What is Pfizer's next moonshot? Come on, get into it. This is a moonshot. Where we put all our efforts because again based on the discussion we have for strategy mm. we think we have the capabilities to make a difference and there is a huge need gotta help people gotta help them from the world to see a difference is uh, cancer with all this corruption in the world it's nice to know there are some things we can rely on like your love your tenacity and vitality and our partners like Field of Greens. You may have made a resolution to eat healthy this year, but are you going to be talking about cancer from the perspective of profit? Many of you, of course, statistically, have had cancer or know people that have had cancer. And to hear it just spoken about in terms of a business opportunity is kind of a little jarring, but that is the world we live in. Again, the pandemic period was revelatory. It revealed things that were always present up until the pandemic. Normal anti-establishment folk used to just not trust Pfizer and because of like stuff like Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis and the Sackler family and the numerous times that Pfizer have made massive settlements out of court but suddenly during the pandemic period they got sort of reframed as kind of the Avengers sometimes literally using the Avengers in some of their promos <laughs> Why are academia, the corporate world, and pharmacology all teaming together to present disease as a kind of business opportunity? Well, because that's the reality of the world we live in. But has something extraordinary happened in the last few years to make people more sick, or keep people sick, or just to treat the world as one big marketplace of blubbery pale, sick, insipid people that just eat dreadful food and then have to make ourselves better using moon juice spurted out from boiler? Made myself feel a bit sick there. And this proposal, we are organizing our, our, uh, the whole organization to, to make sure that this area is uh, well, well equipped to be successful. Cancer. That's the new Munson. Okay, let's have a look at some of the financial details around Baller's investment. He said there that the next moonshot is cancer. Let's have a look at where Pfizer put their money where your cancer is. Pfizer has stunned the medical world, completing the $43 billion acquisition of Segan, a small drug company that treats turbo cancers and barely makes $2 billion per year. We're struggling to get by, sir, on barely $2 billion a year. What day is it? It's Christmas Day, of course. Sir, run down there and get me your finest goose and some drugs for turbo cancers. They're going to be big this year. The acquisition means Pfizer becomes the largest oncology company in the world, capable of treating most turbo cancers. Are we all going to be getting turbo cancer? Do not leave your home for six months otherwise you will get turbo cancer. Wear a mask, put on a hat, shut your mouth, otherwise 
It's terrible cancer for you. Merry Christmas. However, the nature of the acquisition has left many people scratching their heads. Probably one of the symptoms of turbo cancer. Why would Pfizer flush with the enormous profits it has reaped through its mRNA vaccine? Brett Weinstein would say it shouldn't be called a vaccine. Overpay $43 billion for a small cancer drug company. Pfizer does not need the cash. It will also issue $31 billion in debt just to purchase Sagan. So that's extraordinary. Pfizer are backing the idea that turbo cancers are about to become extremely profitable to the tune of $43 billion. That's an interesting move because ultimately that's the bottom line. That's what we can read. Remember, our most reliable information with regard to excess deaths came not from the medical establishment, but from insurance companies who were like, we can't keep insuring people. They keep dying for no reason all of a sudden. So money matters, particularly when trying to get some verifiable data to make analysis from. But it gets even worse. Pfizer CEO Albert Baller did a media interview tour about the $43 billion Sagan acquisition. Here are the key takeaways from his interviews. 33% of people will get turbo cancer in the future. Of this is certain. You're not getting turbo cancer. You're not getting turbo cancer. You know. You're not going to lose your job. You're not going to lose your job. You know, you're not going to lose your job. Entire families will be affected. Again, he's certain. The new cancer treatments are like missiles that will target most turbo cancers. Once again, we see the militaristic language deployed that we became familiar with during the pandemic period, how it had to be framed as a war. Do you remember that kind of the amount of effort that went into that? Do your part, do your bit. This is kind of like our war. At the beginning, at the fun bit of the pandemic, do you remember the fun bit? Oh, we're all staying indoors. And there were sort of songs and memes and stuff like that. The language that's used around these things is is interesting and potentially revealing. Pfizer will produce them at a scale that has never been seen before. Oh, that's weird. Almost like they've recently had practice in setting up operations where they can issue drugs at an unprecedented level. How extraordinary. Almost like in our country, the UK, Moderna were given taxpayer money to set up factories to continue to create medications for pandemics that aren't currently here. Although there's a WHO treaty coming to a country near you, ensuring that you will pay for future pandemics. By 2025, Pfizer will have a global network. Network. We have a very quick way of completing clinical trials. Does that involve using minimal number of mouses to reach very profitable conclusions? How did you get access to the labs? Well, I don't know. I just followed some of the bats as they flooded in through your open air vents. Will be produced at scale just like mRNA. Like they're using that as if that's like this is a sequel, as if that was something we're all pleased with. Remember the success of mRNA? Well, I've got some questions. Well, it's even better because this time it's cancer. Think about what Baller is telegraphing with this information. Why would any company need to produce cancer treatments at a scale never before seen? Why would Pfizer, of all companies, be willing to bet tens of billions of dollars on turbo cancer continuing to explode at exponential rates around the world in coming years? Seeking alpha analysis theorizes it's going to take Pfizer at least a decade just to break even from this deal. Financially, this $43 billion acquisition makes no sense for Pfizer unless Baller knows something about the future. They're not telling us. But remember, what we're looking for here is a connection between Brett Weinstein saying that many more people than has been surmised have died as a result of those medications and Albert Baller's latest investment. Let's have a look at the Florida Surgeon General talking about potential risks of the vaccines before looking to see whether or not there has been a rise in cancer in young people. There has been a rise. Let's have a look. It's also developing right now. Florida Surgeon General says for us to stop getting the COVID vaccine. Fox 35's Hannah McKinsey is joining us live in the Alert Center tonight. So Hannah, he says what's in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines is a problem. 
problem. Yeah, Luann, John, Florida Surgeon General Dr. Ladipo says he has safety concerns pertaining to the discovery of billions of DNA fragments found per dose in the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines. And he says those concerns have not been addressed by the FDA or the CDC. Dr. Ladipo says if the risks of DNA integration with COVID vaccines cannot be addressed, then the vaccines aren't appropriate for use in humans. But that only applies to humans, so it's not all bad because the mouses, they're presumably fine. Excuse me. He says he sent letters to the heads of the FDA and the CDC specifically questioning how this was impact humans in three main areas. Healthy human genes being transformed into cancerous cells. Oh, so it could cause cancer then, I suppose. And would it cause those cancers slowly or quickly? Well, quite quickly, turbo speed. Yeah, turbo cancers, yeah, I could call them that. Chromosomal instability and how the integration could affect unintended parts of the body, such as the heart, brain, lungs, even the injection site itself. But before we get too cynical, have we heard of any heart issues in people that have been vaccinated? Oh. Although it was initially dismissed as a conspiracy theory, we now know that many vaccine-like products do affect the heart. But cancers? Albert Baller certainly seems to believe a lot of people are going to be getting cancer soon. But is there any evidence because I like to follow the science all the way to the tumor. Among younger people, it says more people are getting colorectal cancer and more people are dying from it. While the cause of the uptick is not clear, doctors say they do have theories about what may be driving the rise. Our George Stephanopoulos has more. Doctors are sounding the alarm about cancer diagnoses on the rise in people younger than 50. And maybe the scariest thing about that is that we actually don't know what is driving this uptick. Colorectal cancer is just one of the several common cancers on the rise in young adults under 50 in the past 20 years. A new report from the American Cancer Society anticipates 153,000 new colorectal cancer cases this year and about 52,000 deaths. 60% of new cases are advanced stage disease and rates are increasing among younger people. Shockingly, one in five people who will be diagnosed presently are younger than 55 years of age, which is quite young for colorectal cancer. Doctors aren't sure what's driving that trend, but say more than half of colorectal cancers are attributed to factors under your control, like diet, exercise, and smoking. It's your fault that you got cancer, and if Albert Borla makes some money out of that, that's none of your business. Although, you did fund the research and development for many of the products that have made Pfizer so rich in the first place. It's your fault. So there you have it, a story in which it becomes clear that more people appear to have died than is being publicly acknowledged as a result of medical administrations in the last couple of years. Information that is suppressed about myocarditis, pericarditis and other heart conditions is now entering the mainstream. We are seeing Albert Baller and Pfizer investing heavily in turbo cancers and elsewhere we're seeing cancer on the rise. A cynical, skeptical, analytical and discerning person might think that there's some connection between all these phenomena. A drug that was introduced to the marketplace without significant or even sufficient trialing has potential side effects that we're still learning about. I don't make any hysterical assumptions or random or ridiculous connections, but it seems to me the way that this has been handled, the way this has been reported on, the way that information has been controlled, repressed, obfuscated, diluted, misrepresented, it seems to me that all of us would do well to remain very, very discerning, awake and aware when it comes to the business dealings of pharmaceutical giants globally.
week. If Albert Baller thinks that turbo cancers are going to be on the rise, and cancer more generally is on the rise in young people, I think it's appropriate to stay awake and alert and be very, very careful what medications you take because some of the consequences and side effects could be literally fatal. But that's just what I think. Why don't you let me know what you think in the comments? So thanks very much for joining us here on Beyond the News and as ever I don't do personalities so I'm not interested in what Russell Brand has or hasn't uh, done at this stage uh, just in the court of public opinion but is what he says correct? Thanks very much for joining us here today on Beyond the News.